You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to the latest episode of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Leah and I are excited to welcome back to the podcast two of our highway investigators, Kenny Bragg and Mike Fox. This month is Motorcycle Safety Awareness Month, and we are going to be talking with um, Kenny and Mike about the Randolph, New Hampshire collision between a pickup truck with a trailer and a group of motorcycles. Welcome, guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Thank you both for having us. As Stephanie mentioned, today we are speaking with two of our highway safety investigators, and these gentlemen have actually been on the podcast before, so welcome back to the podcast, guys. Uh, Mike Fox, you were on episode 29, and Kenny Bragg, you were on episode 21 um, a little while back, but if you wouldn't mind, um, would you give us a brief introduction, reintroduction of yourselves, a little bit of your background. Our listeners can go back to those two episodes where you guys did kind of your full bio background. But if you'll share just a little brief Cliff Notes version of how you got to the board. Kenny, I'm going to start with you. Uh, thanks, Leah. Um, I first came to the board in 2013. I uh, came to the board uh, from a law enforcement career where I was a crash investigator I did fatal crash homicide investigations for about 13 years, and I've been in the Office of Highway Safety ever since. And Kenny, uh, can you share just a little bit about how you became an expert in um, crash reconstruction, highway crash reconstruction? Well, in my former position with the police department, I was able to, to do some, uh, some DUI enforcement. I was a breath test operator. I also did commercial vehicle inspections, and I, I got my license as a commercial vehicle operator. So... I had a lot of experience in that capacity, which kind of helped me uh, build my skill set so I come to the board. Great. Thanks. And Mike Fox. Yes, thanks, Celia. Uh, before coming to the board, I was an investigator for the DOT, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Uh, I was also trained in traffic reconstruction, um, and I was working a crash in Virginia, and the NTSB came out and took over the crash, and... Uh, I applied uh, to the board a year later, and here I am ever since. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, as Stephanie mentioned, today we're talking about a uh, crash that occurred in Randolph, New Hampshire. Um, in December of 2020, we completed our investigation um, into this crash, which occurred on June 21st, 2019. It was a collision between a pickup truck with a trailer and a group of motorcycles. Um, Mike, would you summarize the events of the crash and what was determined to be the probable cause? Sure. Uh, there were several elements that we determined that were causal, uh, what we classify as the probable cause of the crash. First was the pickup truck driver's crossing of the center line and encroachment into the oncoming lane of travel, which occurred because of his impairment uh, from multiple drugs. Also contributing to the crash was the trucking company, or what we call the motor carrier, who was Westfield Transport, that had substantial disregard for the safety regulations. Additionally, uh, the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles, or the RMV, failed to revoke the pickup truck driver's license when they were notified of his loss of his driving privileges in another state. 
So the the Office of Highway Safety doesn't often launch um, investigations to motorcycle crashes. Uh, Kenny, what were the factors that affected the decision to investigate the crash, and how soon after the crash occurred did we launch the team to Randolph, New Hampshire? Well, there were two factors which led us to launch to this to this investigation. Um, one, the number of the number of vehicles and the number of fatalities involved. Um, I believe there were eight fatalities. And then the other thing, it involved a commercial carrier. So it was part of the, the regulated transportation system, which is sometimes is, you know, the primary area of focus in the NTSB. Mm-hmm. And how many motorcycles were involved in this, uh, this crash or this incident rather? Well, there were, there were 15 motorcycles in the, uh, in the formation mm-hmm. and uh, 13 of those were actually either damaged by contact with the vehicle or either falling to the roadway. Mike, can you talk about the safety issues that you identified um, in this investigation? Yes, uh, there were three main safety issues that were identified in this investigation, and they included, uh, number one, deficiencies in out-of-state driver's license notification processing, number two, insufficient federal oversight of motor carriers, and then third, shortcomings in motorcycle rider safety. Okay, so we'd like to dig a little bit into those. Um, Kenny, for the out-of-state driver's licensing safety issue, can you summarize that um, and, uh, and let us know what you, what you determined? Well, when we, when, we delve, uh, when, we, when we dive into the investigation, one of the things that we noticed was that the truck driver, his license should have been suspended. Hmm. And this is, this is from... This is from a traffic offense which took place in another state. Um, so when we looked at it, we found a disconnect between the state that issued the suspension and the state of Massachusetts, which actually should have made the suspension effective. And so what, what led to that breakdown, if you will, in, in how the suspension was applied? At, at some point, the, the RMB changed the, the manner in which they communicated with other states. I mean, went from an electron, went from a paper process to, to an electronic process. Mm-hmm. And when the RMB switched to electronic, some states were still see, were sending them out as paper notifications. And the RMB process, they just stopped processing the paper notifications. Okay. And so there was some, uh, I, instead of miscommunication, there was just kind of some lack of communication, it sounds like, between the states. Yes. And, and, you know, the problem is that, you know, violations don't always translate one for one. So a violation that takes place in one state does not mean it's going to be a violation in another state. Mm -hmm. So so the states, you know, they have to develop a process that they can kind of analyze, you know, per violation to see if that applies to to the licensing process. And we also found that this was not only likely to have occurred in in Massachusetts, there are other states that we looked at that this was potentially occurring. Okay. Mike, when we look at insufficient oversight of motor carriers, and that's unfortunately something that we've cited in, um, in investigations often, but in this particular ca- case, can you explain what that, what that looked like? Sure. Uh, during the investigation, uh, we discovered that the carrier, Westfield Transport, was in severe, egregious noncompliance with the regulations. 
the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration did conduct a post-crash inspection on Westfield, which they uh, actually call a compliance review. And during their investigation, they identified 25 total violations, four acute, three critical, and 18 additional violations, which resulted in an unsatisfactory safety rating. Additionally, the owners lied to investigators, and they tampered with their uh, logging devices. The NTSB uh, determined that the FMCSA oversight of the carrier post-crash was inadequate. The carrier should have been issued an imminent hazard order, but the FMCSA failed to do so. What does it, when you say that they tampered with their logging device, what, what does that mean for somebody that isn't familiar with logging devices? They physically went in and manipulated the settings in the logging device so that it recorded them as being off-duty when actually the drivers were continuing to operate and drive their vehicles. Okay. Wow. And then they lied about that to investigators during interview. Um. So uh, while we've been talking about the um, cause of the crash was the um, truck driver, there were some safety safety issues that uh, were discovered through this investigation that um, you all put in the report and that was discussed, um, including some of the safety features of motorcycles. <clears throat> Mike, can you talk to us about um, the motorcycles that had um, automatic braking systems versus the motorcycles that did not have it. And um, just talk to us a little bit about uh, if the motorcycles with ABS performed better um, and, and kept the riders safe in the crash. Okay, sure. Uh, Anti-lock braking systems or ABS has, has been standard on cars for many years now. Uh, it should be noted, though, it is not standard on motorcycles. ABS technology is designed to allow the rider to maximize braking force during an emergency, braking and bring the motorcycle to a rapid controlled stop without locking up uh, either wheel, which improves stability. Uh, there have been numerous uh, safety studies that have demonstrated that this, this technology can improve stopping performance for both a novice as well as experienced riders. We interviewed the survivors of the crash. Several of the riders who had ABS-equipped motorcycles told us that during the crash sequence, they were able to execute emergency hard braking and come to a controlled stop without crashing into a guardrail or other vehicles. They felt the technology assisted them in coming to a controlled stop without crashing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing. Mike, can you talk a little bit about why ABS technology isn't something that has been as widely adopted on motorcycles as it has for other motor vehicles? It is uh, standard in Europe on many motorcycles, but not in the U.S. It's typically uh, on the higher end, the, the, the most expensive motorcycles, and on some of the foreign motorcycles, but it is not standard on all on-road motorcycles in the United States. But that is a recommendation that you you all made out of this investigation too, right? That you realize that that is a significant safety improvement to, to motorcyclists and that we call for that to be... Um, well, it was reiterated out of a previous uh, report that we had 
uh, Tenetsu. That kind of lends itself to um, the conversation that we've had on some of our um, some of our other safety items that we've discussed. Is that safety shouldn't be um, or safety should be standard. It shouldn't be an option that costs more money. Um, and I view that you know very much in line with motorcycles. It's almost like this this technology should absolutely be on our motorcycles in order to ensure. They are motorcyclists are a, considered a vulnerable road user because they don't have that hard, you know, vehicular shell encasing them. So in the event of a crash or an incident, um, they absolutely need more protection. Agreed. So shifting a little bit over to another safety item um, that um, or a safety issue that was uh, involved in this crash, um, impairment wasn't considered a finding in this investigation. Um, the toxicology results of the truck driver were positive. However, our medical officers and, and law enforcement uh, weren't able to determine the time of the driver's last drug use before the crash. Uh, Kenny, can you talk to us about the challenges and shortcomings of drug testing and determining impairment in traffic crashes? Sure. When it, when it comes to drug impairment, um, there's a tendency to compare drug impairment with alcohol impairment. Ele- Alcohol impairment is a little bit more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is alcohol. But when we come to drugs, there are many different classes of drugs. And each class of drug um, affects the body differently. Some drug classes, the, the effects of the impairment, um, they remain well after toxicology levels present, or present themselves. Mm-hmm. So part of, the complement, part of the complication of this crash was determining um, not only what what drug class he was using, but determining um, what signs of impairment there would have been and when those signs of impairment would have presented themselves. Mm-hmm. So in this crash, uh, the medical officer, she, uh, she or he evaluated this individual? No, so in this crash, we looked at his toxicology test. Okay. Um, he, he exhibited some signs of impairment, when police responded to the crash, um, because of the magnitude of resources that were that were required to deal with this crash, uh, the police weren't able to get a drug drug recognition expert mm. to do an examination. So then we we relied primarily on the toxicology results, mm-hmm. and you know he tested positive for morphine, fentanyl, heroin. So there's just a whole cocktail of drugs this guy tested positive on. Mm-hmm. So then you have to understand um, the sinistic effects of impairment, what they look like. So it just wasn't straightforward um, to say that, you know, he was, you know, this high on morphine or this high on fentanyl. It just, you know, we have to look at his cumulative drug use mm-hmm. based on based on his toxicology test. Mm-hmm. And what you just mentioned, uh, that they they didn't have a drug recognition expert um, either accessible or on staff, um, one, that, one recommendation that we made in an uh, earlier report about a crash that occurred in Concan, Texas, we made a safety recommendation to Texas to increase their number of DREs. Um, I imagine that that would be a recommendation that could be taken in any state um, to to bulk up their uh, their resources of drug recognition experts. What do you think about that? Well, you're absolutely right. But but let's remember, this was more than just a, tra- a traffic crash. This was a mass casualty mm-hmm. event. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so they had, you know, 15 vehicles, uh, 16 including the pickup truck, and, you know, at least that many uh, potentially injured. So, you know, the police, they had to um, prioritize the resources and, um, you know, ordinary circumstances, maybe they could have got a DRE out, a drug recognition expert out. But in this case, it was just a lot of resources mm-hmm. that prevented that prevented that from happening. Sure. Like when we look at at the driver and like Kenny was just sharing the um, the many substances that he had in his system, what mechanisms are in place for motor carriers um, to prevent uh, drug impaired driving? Sure, there there's there's multiple things that can be done by a motor carrier. It it can start right at the beginning when you hire a new driver, um, just like in any. Uh, hiring situation, it's prudent for the new employer to check with the previous employers sure. to, to see what kind of driving or, or history that this applicant has. The same thing applies in commercial uh, uh, trucking. Uh, it's a, it's a, actually a federal regulation that they are required to check with the previous employers to check on their history Additionally, there's also supposed to check on the, uh, if the driver was subject to drug and alcohol testing. They're supposed to query uh, the previous employer to see if they were compliant with the drug and alcohol testing program that they had in place. In this situation, in this case, had Westfield ch- checked with the previous employer that uh, our accident driver was um, uh, employed by, they would have found out that he had a rollover crash in Texas about 10 days just before this crash. Hmm. And and the driver failed to comply with a post-crash drug and alcohol test that the the carrier mandated. So there's a lot of different things that can be done to prevent these types of things from happening, in addition to making sure that the carrier has a robust drug and alcohol testing program. And Stephanie, I think it's important to, to highlight that this driver had only been working for this carrier for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this his problems with drug and alcohol um, incidents previously, if they, if they had looked, they were there. And in this case, those problems bore out pretty quickly, you know, with this employment. It was like one or two days, wasn't it, Mike, that he, was, he had been working. So this is like his first trip wow. with the carrier. It was his first trip. Wow. Yeah. And, and this isn't the first time we've seen this. We saw the same thing in Chattanooga. The, the driver, within his first week, you know, the guy didn't, the company didn't do a, a very thorough vetting of the driver. And within the first week, those drug and alcohol problems came out in the crash. Kenny, you know, we started our conversation by talking about some of the deficiencies with, you know, the, the driver's license being, you know, his suspension. But for carriers, Mike or Kenny, you know, what resources are available to carriers to, to be able to find that information, would they simply just be relying on, you know, if you listed your previous employer, employer as a reference, what other resources would they have been able to use to, to, to find that information about him if he had not disclosed that? The first thing that they have at their disposal is the driver's application. They have to do a, uh, a, 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 thorough, a thorough disclosure of all the employers that they had worked for. Mm-hmm. Additionally, 
There is, uh, uh, the FMCSA has uh, some several tools that they, you can do a query on drivers. One of them is the clearinghouse. You can go and query mm-hmm. the alcohol and drug clearinghouse to see if the driver has any history there. Sorry, I was, I just got lost in that conversation. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's very, uh, it's compelling, compelling, uh, alarming yes. to, uh, to recognize, uh, the, the misses that occurred, um, th- leading up to this crash and just to process that this, again, uh, like so many of our crashes that we investigate and so many crashes that we don't investigate that occur, um, so many highway crashes are preventable um, and they they happen because something went unchecked. So um, I just had to snap out of that moment for a second. Kenny, uh, in the traffic safety world, we talk about the four E's for improving safety, um, education, engineering, enforcement, and emergency medical services. One of the findings in this report was that the emergency response to the crash was timely and appropriate, which is helpful, I would imagine. Um, How do you determine whether the response was timely and appropriate, and what do you look for in, in finding that? Well, even, even the rural area of Randolph, um, New Hampshire, where this crash occurred, mm-hmm. fire, EMS, um, police, they all use a dispatching system. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we do is we, we try to synchronize clocks, and then we, we look at when the 911 calls came in, um, and then where the resources were directed, you know, did they contact the fire department, um, paramedics, police, and then how long it took them to get there. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, you know, there was a very good account of, of their efforts and their response. And it was very, you know, very, very impressive, mm-hmm. especially, especially considering this is a rural part of the state. And then the number of resources that it, it took to deal with this, this mass casualty incident. Sure. Kenny or Mike, we, you identified, um, you know, safety deficiencies. And as Leah just said, you know, there were clearly opportunities a couple of different times to really have intervened and prevented this crash from happening. You all made um, a couple of recommendations as a result of this investigation. Can you summarize for us um, some of the things that you you think should happen um, to prevent something like this from happening again? Well, I think one of the first things is has to do with uh, motor carrier oversight. Uh, you know, like we discussed throughout this this podcast, mm-hmm. there were signs that this was a troubled driver. There are indications that this guy should not be driving a commercial vehicle, mm-hmm. much less a vehicle on the road anyway. And and the, the carrier missed some steps. And even the state of Massachusetts, you know, they missed an opportunity to get this driver off the road just by, you know, a lapse in their, in their processing system. Um, with, the, with the motorcyclists, another issue that we dealt with is that a couple of the, the motorcycle riders had alcohol in their system, you know, and... and if alcohol, if not being on alcohol is important in a passenger car, it's even more, more so important on a motorcycle because mm-hmm. you require, you know, to have balance in addition to, in addition to control the vehicle. So, you know, all of these things, um, were very important. You know, no one can ever predict when an accident is going to occur. So the best we can do is, is put ourselves in a position to deal with the unexpected reasonably. <laughs> Stephanie just mentioned that um, we made new new recommendations, and we also reiterated some recommendations. Mike, 
Can you talk to me about um, what it means and, and why we re reiterate recommendations? Yes, thanks for the question, Leah. Uh, a reiterated recommendation means that it was issued in a, in a previous uh, report. And because we feel it's so uh, important, we want to resurface it uh, and represent it in a, a, in a new report so that we can address the safety issues that were identified. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the one of the reiterated recommendations was one of the topics I was talking about earlier with ABS. Uh, so in a previous safety study that we did in 2018, uh, in that report, we identified uh, out of the motorcycle crash causation study that FHWA had done uh, that um, we issued a recommendation to NHTSA to require ABS uh, on all on-road motorcycles. So mm -hmm. as, as I stated earlier, ABS was very uh, profound uh, finding in this case because several of the riders told us that they were able to come to a controlled stop, preventing mm -hmm. them from crashing. So we took this opportunity to reiterate that recommendation. Sure. And does reiterating recommendations um, cause the recommendation recipient to um, act faster at all? Or is it just our mechanism that we can bring this, like you said, um, back to the attention of the general public um, and the recommendation recipients that we, um, you know, we're reminding them that we know that this needs to be done. We're seeing it again. It's happening again. Um, what is, you know, what does that, what does that do for our recommendations, if anything? Well, in some cases, uh, I think we've reiterated recommendations over and over again, and they fall on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. However, Every time that there is a, a crash and we investigate and we determine a probable cause and whether we're issuing new recommendations or reiterating old ones, it's our opportunity to address uh, whether it's industry or government uh, or a manufacturer, the importance of trying to take corrective action so that this problem doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. As a... As an investigator, and this is to either of you, um, as an investigator, when you go out to a crash and uh, you discover what occurred and you realize that we've made recommendations for the same thing in the past, how is that, you know, how is that for you just knowing that this could have been prevented had the rec recipient um, or the state or whoever taken our recommendation and implemented it successfully? Um, personally, I, I find it very frustrating, in, in particular because we, we often deal with mm -hmm. the family members that are left behind. So when you see something that's happened again and again and again, and each time you see families that are just devastated by an act mm -hmm. or an event that could have been prevented, it's just really, really frustrating. Yeah, I, I would agree with Kenny. It is frustrating to see things that uh, could have been prevented such as in this case, uh, alcohol or impairment. Mm -hmm. I know for me over the 20 something years I've been doing this, I've been to many, many uh, crashes that have been the result of impairment. And uh, it's very frustrating indeed. You know, and in this case, the fact that he, he rolled a tractor trailer. Right. You know, days before this crash and was still able to, right. was still able to go out and get another job. It just really points out that, you know, it's just a travesty that this guy 
was right. behind him. And he could have been stopped. stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, you are one of our greatest advocates for motorcycle safety at NTSB. We enjoy working with you as a rider. Um, you are passionate about, about safety and, and sharing our safety message. We started the podcast by mentioning it is Motorcycle Safety Awareness Month, and we're approaching the Memorial Day holiday, where we know that's kind of a big kickoff for the, for the rider community. Just want to ask you if you can share some tips um, for anyone that's either uh, a rider, passenger, um, or the rest of us who are sharing roads with minor motorcyclists. What, what safety advice do you have for us before we close? Yeah, sure. Well, there's there's basically almost uh, two questions in there. I'll take the first one. May is Motorcycle uh, Safety Awareness Month. And uh, I, boy, I've been a rider for 35 years now. And uh, it's a lot of fun, but you also have to recognize it's very dangerous. You're 29 times more likely to die on a motorcycle than in a car. It takes a lot of balance. It takes a lot of coordination to be safe on a motorcycle. Uh, and so there's several things that you can do to make sure that you're, that you're riding under safe conditions. And, and the first would be to check your motorcycle and make sure it's, it's ready to ride. Check your lights, your brakes, uh, your fluids. If you're carrying any cargo, make sure that it's properly secured and balanced. And the next thing is gear up. Uh, make sure you're wearing, uh, all the right gear all the time. Uh, wear a, a, a DOT approved helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, wear, wear a, 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 a motorcycle jacket, a leather jacket. Uh, they have new ones that are, have reinforced panels in, on the arms and on the chest. Uh, so God forbid if you fall over that you could uh, mitigate your uh, crash. And another thing is wear bright clothing. Wear a reflective vest so you can be seen by other drivers. And then the second part of your, your question is uh, for the, the, the passenger cars that are out there, uh, it's now summertime, getting to be summertime. A warmer months means that there will be a lot more motorcycles out on the road. And motorcycles are hard to see. Um, look for motorcycles at intersections, especially when you're making a left turn. And uh, don't, don't, don't ride too close to motorcycles or on the back of them. Give them plenty of space. And lastly, uh, you know, make sure that you use your turn signals when you're making a, a, a signal change. And those are some of the tips you can do to improve uh, to make the road safer. Can, can I add one in there, Mike? Of course. If you're a motorcycle operator, mm-hmm. it's really important to stay sober. You know, you can't, you can't have one or two beers and think it's not going to uh, affect your balance, which is critical, and, you know, controlling the motorcycle. So no alcohol. Don't drive after, don't ride after drinking. It's really important. And, and don't drive after drinking. We'll just throw that in there as well. Okay. Because drivers also, you know, who have any alcohol in their system, again, may struggle to see that there's a motorcycle um, around them. And that can cause, again, devastating results. Uh, Gentlemen, we're getting to the end of our our podcast today. And uh, I also want to... um, you know, we got we gave Mike uh, a big shout out for being a fierce advocate for motorcycle safety, and we greatly appreciate it. But I also want to shout out to Kenny for being a fierce advocate, um, particularly for the impairment um, side of things, as you are on my advocacy team for 
for the mo- most wanted list safety item of, of impairment. Um, but before we close, I just want to um, give you all an opportunity to share any closing thoughts about motorcycle safety, motorcycle safety month, um, anything that we haven't covered today uh, before we wrap up. Uh, I, I want to say something, and that is that, uh, as you pointed out, we're getting close to Memorial Day weekend, and uh, both Kenny and I are veterans, and uh, this crash was uh, very burdensome to us because uh, there were Marines that died in this crash, mm-hmm. and uh, they served our country, and we keep them in our thoughts and prayers and their families as we enter the Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, thanks for that. And for me, I would like to thank Stephanie and Leah. I mean, I feel like Mike and I do good work, but without you guys, <laughs> we would just be talking to each other. So you, you guys help, you guys help, help take our, our message to the public. And I think that's really important as well. Thanks. Thanks, Kenny. Stephanie, anything from you as we wrap up? Yes. So as Leah mentioned, the most wanted list, we just recently um, announced, adopted our new most wanted list and um, impairment and uh, protecting vulnerable road users through a safe system approach are both two of the highway safety issues featured on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, the vulnerable road user um, issue, uh, safety item uh, features motorcycle uh, safety and, and protecting motorcyclists. So I would just encourage our listeners to check out the new most wanted list if they haven't, ntsb.gov forward slash MWL um, for all those resources. Thanks, Stephanie. And uh, before uh, I totally close out, I just want to wish our listeners a happy and safe Memorial Day weekend. Um, Be safe whether you are going to be uh, traveling at all by air, getting out your watercraft, um, getting on the roads, traveling to see family or friends, what have you, or getting on our rails. Be safe, be smart. And I want to thank our guests again for joining us today. I want to thank my co-host, Stephanie, for being amazing. And thank you, James Anderson, our producer, for always making us sound great. Thank you, and we'll see you and talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.